Hello and welcome to Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we select VHS tapes from either my collection or Lindsay's collection or sometimes even a guest's collection. <laughs> we watch him and then we talk about him. Uh, Lindsay, we have a very special guest on the show today. He's an actor. <laughs> He's a teacher. Award-winning actor. Are you yeah, an award-winning teacher yet? No, no. Okay. No teaching awards. Close. Okay. You may know our guest from the blockbuster feature film Prep School, now available on Amazon Prime. <laughs> ben Bellamy. How are you, sir? I'm good. It's it's good to be on here. A long long-time listener, first time guest i know yeah. on our on our guest wish list you were very close to the top and we've been meaning to have you on for a long time oh yeah and, and i'm i'm very excited about this movie that we just watched yeah well well why don't you tell us what this movie is and maybe a little bit of your your background with it well uh tonight we watched liar liar uh featuring jim carrey the one and only from the beautiful year of 1997. It was a good year. It was a good year, a fine year. Let's see, my history with this movie, I'm pretty sure I saw this movie in theaters. I have very strong memory memories of seeing Jim Carrey movies with my dad, who maybe not vocally, like I don't know if I ever heard my dad say, I'm a huge Jim Carrey fan, but I know that we saw every new Jim Carrey film that came out, and that it was like the hardest I ever saw my dad laugh. So I remember, I very strongly remember seeing the mask in theaters mm-hmm. um, and him finding it hilarious. I remember seeing Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. That movie opens so strange. I mean, that whole movie is very strange, <laughs> but that movie opens with Jim Carrey kicking that package like down the street uh-huh, yeah. and down the hallway. And my dad found that hilarious, I remember. <laughs> And then we'll talk about this movie, but the I very vividly remember the pen sequence in this movie and my dad just losing his shit at that scene <laughs> and how funny it was. So I have like fond memories of that, of just both of us finding films hilarious that had Jim Carrey in them. And uh, then this was also one of the films that we owned on VHS. That beautiful format. Yeah, it was this... <laughs> We owned Clueless. We owned Mallrats, if you know that movie. Kevin's one of the Kevin Smith yeah. movie. Um, a very strange movie that maybe we should do on this podcast at some point. Airheads. Mm. Oh, with Brendan yeah. Fraser and Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Adam Sandler. It's got an incredible cast. Oh and yeah, it's a very I think. Strange um, movie. Michael Richards, Kramer from Seinfeld, has a pretty big role in that. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and Chris Farley has a little cameo in it, Mm -hmm. too. You know, it can't be overstated how much Jim Carrey really loomed in the zeitgeist in the mid to late 90s. Lindsay, like, we did the mask on the show. Yeah. We talked about his big 94, Ace Ventura, The Mask, Mm -hmm. Dumb and Dumber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, Jim Carrey sort of was, like, my introduction of, like, what a movie star is. You know? <laughs> I mean, I you mean, do no. have a portrait of him with his signature in your room. Yes, I wrote, I wrote, Jim, we probably room. talked about this in The Mask, but um, I sent my very first fan letter to an actor. Was to Jim Carrey? Was to Jim Carrey. And it was like, a, like I drew him a picture of the Riddler, like with magic wow. markers. Like, I was very into Jim Carrey at this time, and like... I think similarly, I had seen The Mask in theaters and caught up with some of his other films on VHS. But yeah, he sent back an autographed photo wow, that said, awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> in true form. That's very Jim Carrey. Lindsay, did you see this movie in theaters or on VHS? I'm trying to remember. I know I saw The Mask in theaters because I remember afterwards my mom going, I didn't realize that was (laughs) 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 PG-13. But I can't remember. I know we had this on VHS and we watched it a lot. Liar Liar. Yeah. Nice. And then I remember I was a huge fan of the second Ace Ventura movie. Yeah. I think think that was another one we had too. Yeah. And I think there were just so many different scenes from that. Him birthing out of the fake right now. Oh, yeah. One of the best comedy scenes ever, I think. (laughs) From Ace Ventura too. Pretty hot in these rhinos. (laughs) (laughs) 
Before we get too far into liar liar discussion, you did have some ads on your VHS <laughs> copy of this movie. Oh yes. And one of them was pretty great. <laughs> it starts up it, it so this is a Universal Studios film. Uh, and these are all Universal ads. Um, but it starts up, it fades in, and it's just kind of like, oh, this is a backdraft ad. But then you're thinking, wait, <laughs> it's that a doesn't... trailer, yeah. Yes, wait, but that movie came out much earlier in the 90s, this, or maybe even the late 80s. Like, does this make any sense? And then you realize, you start to see the people watching this building <laughs> catch fire. This is the Backlot Fire Show. <laughs> And uh, you realize that you're in a Universal Studios theme park advertisement. And then you're just bombarded with experiences <laughs> that you can have at Universal Studios. Bold text. Really intensely, screen. yeah. So I wrote down some of this copy because it's crazy. I missed the backdraft one, but when it gets to the Waterworld stunt show, which, by the way, is still there. Oh, it's still, still there. Still called... I'm pretty sure backdraft's still there. Oh, is it? I haven't gone in a long know. time. Do any of the kids visiting it even know what the movies are? Oh, I'm sure that the stunt show is more successful than the movie at this point. That movie is kind of a flop. But a billion gallons of water surround (laughs) you. That can't be true. That can't be true. That's a lot of gallons. Your worst nightmare comes true. That was Jurassic Park. (laughs) Which I... And I made the point to you at the time, that's not my nightmare, that's my dream. Yeah, you're literally Ben is wearing a Jurassic Park t-shirt right now. Yeah, as we record this podcast. Then uh, the title card appears, where are you? (laughs) And I think we all know the answer. We're in Universal Studios. Is that question... I think you're in Hollywood, I think is what it says. Oh, you're in Hollywood, yeah. But then it advertises that they have locations in Florida and Hollywood, California. So you're not really in Hollywood. You could be in Orlando. That's true. It's... Is it a... I guess it's rhetorical. (laughs) It's not... We were there they're still waiting for our answer. Yeah, right. It's... It's... It's not... It's not expressed as a rhetorical question. It feels almost like a quiz. Yeah. Like yeah. they've given you all the clues. Or it's like a riddle. Yeah. It's like <laughs> it's a riddle. Where okay, are you? So, so Ben, a billion gallons of water surround you. <laughs> Your worst nightmare comes true. Where are you? I would guess I was marooned on a desert island <laughs> with no food or water. I guess but... I'm in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> It's like your worst nightmare comes true. Where are you? Oh, you're in our theme park. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a weird choice. I was not a Disneyland kid. I mean, we went to Disneyland, but my heart belonged to Universal Studios because I knew at a young age that I had a serious love of movies and movie making. Yeah. And I remember that, uh, what is it, like the tram that goes yeah. through the park? and the- Universal Studios is is I think great. Yeah, I haven't gone I never a liked long time, Disneyland but- that much, but Universal Studios is awesome. I mean, I was I was thankful for my you know young Disneyland experiences, but Universal Studios was where it was at. No, I was into Disneyland, but I did really love meeting Beetlejuice, and I still have my photo with Beetlejuice to this day. <laughs> <Wow>. Cherish it, <laughs> Michael. They, it's weird they hired Michael Keaton to just hang around. The <laughs> <laughs> There's an apocryphal story about Jim Carrey. I mean, I'm sure it's true because it was during the making of Man on the Moon when apparently he sort of went insane where he would just sneak into like the psycho house and stare out at people as they came by on the tram because he was already on the universal backlot and he would just I completely sort of mess with people that were there that's so funny I completely believe it rest of the ads aren't quite as exciting as that we got the jackal with Bruce Willis Mm -hmm. anyone yeah I remember I think I've seen that movie a few times I'm not sure yeah. why or how. It, I, it's on TV a lot, I feel like, or it was at one point. I mostly remember Bruce Willis as the master assassin and that crazy gun that he has, the, like, robo-gun. The ma- Yeah, and the main scene that I always remember is he shoots Jack Black's arm off in that, in that movie. Because Jack Black made his gun for him and calibrated it wrong, and to punish him for that... Bruce Willis makes him stand with like a matchbox, holding a matchbox or something like that. It's like some crazy high caliber. Yeah, like and then it cal. ends up shooting his his entire arm off, which is really God. dark. But uh, I remember enjoying that movie, or at least I remember enjoying Bruce Willis in that movie. Yeah, Richard Gere, not so much. Uh, I never really enjoy Richard Gere. 
I well, you know how I feel about Richard Gere in yeah. Pretty Woman, at least. I think that he's had some good roles, but can you name one? Chicago. There you I liked go. him in Chicago. Oh, he's good in Chicago. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's, that's <laughs> so that's <laughs> And there's another one too. I like also movies where he plays a real slime ball. Like um uh what what's the name? I think it's called Internal Affairs. He's kind of a he's kind of the American Hugh Grant in that way. Like, yeah. I actually oh. prefer mm-hmm. Hugh Grant when he's playing kind of a dick. Oh, and Primal Fear, which is more of an Edward Norton vehicle, but that's yeah. like a legal thriller that I think that he's good in. Okay. So you can name a few things. Yeah. It's not like uh Trying to think of somebody that I. There's a oh, couple no. actors, actresses I can yeah. name who I'm just like I just don't think this person's good. Yeah. Objectively. Name, name a couple. Oh man. You might have to work with them someday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless I ever work with Andy McDowell, I don't think. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't like her in anything. I don't necessarily think she's a bad actress. Honestly, I just she almost ruins Groundhog Day for me. Oh, really? Doesn't almost ruin it. That's a little strong, but I just don't believe that anyone would want would spend it eternity mm. trying to get with Andy McDowell. Yeah. Several hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> <with some estimates. laughs> yeah. And she does ruin for when he's in a funeral I was going to say, I don't like her in that. No, her character no. sucks. And that's ma- maybe the script more than her in a lot of ways. But It's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. I just don't, I don't like her. She plays that kind of like one character and I'm never a fan mm-hmm. but I'm sure she's lovely <laughs> <laughs> uh, next on the list we got something that I think we should have on the podcast at some point Apollo 13 oh, oh yeah good movie good, great. great Tom Hanks movie we've covered quite a few on this program we're gonna do his whole just the just his filmography. filmography of Tom Hanks at some point <laughs> Men's had an incredible career. Yeah, and it keeps evolving, too. Like, I like the stage we're in right now. I like the latter-day Tom Hanks, where he's just playing, like, these real professionals, like, in The Post. I didn't think he was great in The Post, actually. Oh, really? I liked him. my hot take. Yeah. I didn't think The Post was quite as good as it was said to be, but... I think it was rushed into production for, you know, well, Spielberg was in Post on... Uh, Ready Player One, and I think it really shows. But yeah. I did, yeah. I do like it. Yeah, but he's great in Apollo Thirteen. Mm-hmm. I mean, Apollo Thirteen is just a very good movie, I think. Yeah, and then the old Eddie Murphy classic, The Nutty Professor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> directed I, by the same person who directed Liar Liar. Yeah, uh, Tom Shadyak, who also wrote Nutty Professor. Yeah, the, yeah, this version and. Uh, Ace Ventura as well. Right. Yeah. He wrote and directed Ace Ventura and wrote and directed Nutty Professor, which is kind of wild. Yeah, kind of instrumental in some huge Jim Carrey movies. Yeah. And it's... Man. And Bruce Almighty, which is kind of his, we were thinking, like his mm. last big blockbuster. Yeah, Bruce mm-hmm. and Evan Almighty were his were his last kind of two big movies, and he hasn't really done anything since then. You're talking the director. Yeah. The director, yeah. Yeah. Tom Shadiak. Yeah. Well, I was saying I was saying for Jim Carrey, I think that Bruce Almighty was kind of his last big like oh, at this yeah. level because Liar Liar was a huge box office hit. Needless to say, yeah, it made like 180 million or something insane, yeah. or maybe even more. You were saying, Lindsay? I think I think it was made for like 30 million, and 20 million of that was spent on Jim Carrey's salary. <laughs> Um, which sense. in those, I mean, even today is an, is a crazy amount to pay an actor, but he was at the top of his game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any uh, hot takes on the Nutty Professor, or before we delve into Liar Liar, or man, I haven't seen that movie in years, but I'm sure it's terrible. <laughs> I, I, have, I haven't it's seen it because I remember when it came out, my mom assumed it would be inappropriate. I think probably because of Eddie Murphy's stand up. Oh yeah, like yeah. raw and delirious. Yeah. I think it had a ton of influence on movies that came later, too. Like, we were talking about Austin Powers, which had come out around the same year, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And then as the sequels were coming out for that, he kept doing more and more of the characters. Yes, absolutely. This is also the beginning of Eddie Murphy as a family, kind of opening that door. Yeah. Because he'd done strictly R-rated stuff, mm-hmm. like Beverly Hills Right, Cop. he did Dr. Doolittle after Nutty yeah. Professor. Yeah. I, I mean, this recall. is kind of his second wave, because Beverly Hills Cop 3 was a big flop, and it sort of seemed like that was going to be the end of it. I might be forgetting one or two movies in there, but... I remember this was a big comeback for him. Nutty Professor was... I mean, that movie was huge. Yeah. Yeah. Inescapable. Him yeah, playing inescapable. that entire family. 
And I saw it multiple times, I'm sure. I mean, I'm yeah. pretty sure we must have owned it. What's he doing now? Eddie Murphy? Yeah. I don't He's know. out there. He's out there. He's doing his thing. I'm yeah, not that's... worried about him. <laughs> I'm not worried about him. I mean, he must have made a ton of money and oh, been, yeah. done fine. He must have appeared on the SNL like reunion thing that they mm. did a few oh, years probably. ago. I'm pretty sure he appeared on yeah. that. But I just remember Norbit that. didn't do well. Yeah, I think Whatever he had some like called. major flops and then just yeah. threw his hands up probably and went. And I, I think that he was all but guaranteed to win Best Supporting Actor for Dreamgirls, but at the last minute it went to Arkin for Little Miss Sunshine. Oh. And I remember famously he stormed out of the ceremony. Really? I don't And, and I, I don't know how, how much of this is true, but a lot of people blame Norbit for him losing that because that came out around the same time that Fucking voting... Norbit. Fucking Norbit. <laughs> <laughs> around the same time that the voting would have happened. I blame Norbit for a lot of things. <laughs> um, but for the uninitiated, what is Liar Liar about, Ben? Well, um, Liar Liar... How do we encapsulate Liar Liar? <laughs> Um, Pretend you're at a pitch meeting. Right, I should say, I've seen this movie probably like 40 times at this (laughs) point. Like an insane amount of times, because I watched it a lot as a kid. I watched it a couple years ago with my fiancé and her parents, and... You know, sometimes you watch an old movie that you loved as a kid, and you're like, man, I hope this isn't deeply problematic... Or, like, much more terrible than I remembered it. We I don't know what you're talking about on this podcast. <laughs> that never happened before. I that had, doesn't happen every other week. I had, like, no reservations about that at all, just because I remembered virtually the entire script word for word still. And so, um, so yeah, so this movie is about a lawyer called Fletcher Reed, played by Jim Carrey, he's the main character, uh, simply put, is not a good person. He's uh, separated and divorced from his ex-wife, played by Maura Tierney, and they have a son, Max. He's a doting father when he's around, jokes around with his kid a lot, um, and his kid, Max, clearly really loves him. But the problem is that he's very attached to his job as a lawyer and so he frequently misses out on play dates with his son and picking up his son and notably in this movie a birthday party and at said birthday party his son makes a wish uh, that for just one day his dad can't tell a lie his dad couldn't tell a lie so wouldn't be able to uh, make promises that he couldn't keep and back out of taking his son to see wrestling or mm-hmm. just playing baseball with his son. Couldn't make any of those excuses. Yeah. And uh, his wish comes true magically. And over the course of that day, Fletcher, uh, played by Jim Carrey, has to deal with that. And it has implications for his work, for his professional life, for his personal life. Um, combined with the fact that his ex-wife is in a relationship with... Uh, I've forgotten the character's Carrie name. Ellis. Carrie Ellis. <laughs> She's Jerry. in a relationship with... Jerry? Jerry. Jerry, played he, by he Carrie Ellis. He looks like a Jerry. <laughs> he looks like a Jerry, acts like a Jerry, just is a Jerry embodied. And uh, uh, Jerry is moving to Boston and uh, wants Moratuni to come with him um, and wants her to marry him. And uh, this is a thing that she is unsure about, but as Fletcher acts more and more awfully um, and disappoints their son more and more, she moves more and more towards wanting to move to Boston. And so that's that's kind of the big stakes for him, is that he has the professional stakes of there's this, this divorce case that he's the lawyer on that he's trying to win so he can make partner, and he can't lie, so that's devastating to that. But then there's also, he's trying to stop his ex-wife and son moving away to Boston. And they live in L.A. The film's set in L.A., so moving to Boston mm-hmm. would be a big deal. Now, it's kind of interesting because when they sort of, in, the, the film starts with the kid not knowing what his dad's job is. He thinks he's just a liar. That's a, a very clever liar. way of introducing yeah. like the concept of the film right away is that Max is doing like a show and tell at school mm-hmm. and introduces his mom as a teacher. We were just talking about what kind of teacher 
his mom might because be... Because she has one of those Hollywood mansions. She has you. a Hollywood mansion, and she seems to be able to be able to take time off from her job to help Fletcher get his car out of the pound. And You guys were thinking that she might be like a tenured professor she or something. She must be, because she's like, oh, I've got a class later that I've got to go to, which is not something you say if you're like a elementary or high school teacher. You yeah. just got to be yeah. there all day. Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, yeah, that's how I think it's a clever way of opening the film. Sort of introduces the concept and a little bit of background into what the main character does as well. One of the things I really appreciate about this movie is that the magic, like the mechanics behind it, aren't really explained too heavily. Mm-hmm. You just kind of go with it. Like it's a very, it's a rather grounded movie. I mean, barring all the insane things that Jim Carrey does with his face, <laughs> which you just kind of accept. Right. But I like how grounded it is, and just with this one thing that, for some reason, this kid's wish came true on his birthday, and you just accept that. I think it's interesting that Jim Carrey or Fletcher just kind of accepts it too. Like he, it's a throwaway comment. Uh, or it's a comment meant to hurt him that his ex-wife makes. Like, do you know what your son was doing last night? He was wishing that for just one day you couldn't tell a lie. And he suddenly has this realization. And there's no moment of, but wait, that's ridiculous that yeah. a child's wish could come true. He just accepts that, oh, that's what's happened. That's why this is happening. Because then where does the power come from? The child himself, the power, the magical power of birthdays. But if they spend too much right. time on it, it would just distract from all the other things they have to I like that right at the end of the film, they do make a little, like, nod to that. Like, I, they joke about it where right at the end of the film, he's celebrating his next birthday and he's about to blow out the candles yeah. and they have this moment of, whoa, 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 wait, <laughs> don't make any crazy wishes. The implications of this child's power yeah. are <laughs> incredible. Don't wish for nuclear war, Max. Yeah. Wait, can we talk about how this kid is too old? They say he's five, but when the movie came out, he was nine years old. This boggles we my mind. We should talk about this, because this really bothered Lindsay. Yeah, Lindsay, t- tell us about this. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, like you cast a kid who's not five. Why don't, If you want to be a little younger, why don't you say he's seven? And how old was he, did we figure out? He had to have been at least eight when they were filming it, because he was nine when it came out. And there's no bearing on the plot that requires him to be five. No. It's just a very he's weird like choice. sweet and is hurt by his father not being around. Can I mean, you imagine being that child actor at eight or nine and saying, I'm five. Yeah, that's a line that he has. I'm turning five. <laughs> I wonder, I mean, the only thing I can think of in defense is that they wanted to think of an age that was like, you're totally innocent an age where you would be completely in love with your dad and you all you might want in the world is for your dad to be around more and for your dad to not lie which I could see like maybe if you're a little bit older like as he does the next year he wishes for rollerblades but I I don't know I think that's weak like you said he could easily have been seven and it would have worked fine I was also just thinking they probably wanted a kid who could read the script by himself. Yeah, I guess, I'm sure it was written as five, but once they started looking at the totally. 2,000 kids or whatever that read for that role, they are like, oh, man. But then why not just rewrite it? Just change it so that he's seven. I mean, It's literally one line, yeah. or maybe two. Because yeah. I know at that age, I think you still have that innocence, and you yeah. still can you do. believably... Because I just looked at that kid throughout the movie and just thought of him as seven or eight, not, yeah. and, and it still worked for me, the premise You're right. of the movie. I mean, in a way, they never need to reference his age at all. It's weird that they do. Can we talk about the rash of bad dad movies that were prevalent <laughs> in the 90s? Like, Jingle All the Way... The Santa Claus. I mean, like, not just movies that we've covered on the show, but yeah. I feel like that was a big theme of just, like, the dad that's too work-driven to mm-hmm. really be a part of his child's life. Although, hmm. when you think of Man of the House, he was a lawyer. He was also the stepdad who was being a shitty dad. That's right. I he forgot. wasn't even yeah. the kid's dad. He couldn't even really give a shit. Where you've, you have Carrie Elwes in this movie who's... A great dad. Did you ever see Man of the House sidebar? Sidebar. Did I ever see? No, I've actually never seen Man of the House. I haven't. I should. It's mind-boggling. Actually, you know, it's one of those films. Maybe I did see at some point, or it was just so. I feel like 
It's one of those movies, like, at Blockbuster, I probably saw the cover a lot, or yeah. I saw tons of trailers for it at some point, and I feel like I've seen it. It was but... on TV, too, if you had Disney Channel right. growing up, but... I didn't, I but I, I, I feel like I... Should, but you I feel like I probably it. have seen it, but it was instantly forgettable if I As did. a cultural yeah. artifact, it's fascinating, because it begins... <laughs> it begins as a movie about JTT stopping Chevy Chase... What we'll put in the spaceship. <laughs> this encapsulates the night. <laughs> Bury me with it. <laughs> it begins with JTT um, just trying to like make sure that Chevy Chase doesn't bang his mom, and it slowly Reasonable. turns into just this Native American. They are part of this nature tribe, the, yeah. and then the mafia gets involved, and the stakes become oh, like Christ. life or it death. Becomes a weird crime movie. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of Lindsay's it. favorite movies as a child. <laughs> It's one of those movies that's horrifying when you watch it as an adult because oh, it's man. so bad and it does so many things that just aren't acceptable anymore. I feel like one of the things I like about this movie is that it, it maybe has a couple moments that are a little problematic. I mean, I generally don't like doing this with movies where I'm like, let's watch a movie from the 90s through the lens of 2018. That's yeah. yeah. almost not fair. But... One of the things I like about this movie is that there's not a lot of stuff that you can really find all that problematic. I mean, the most problematic are just to do with the fact that he manages, Jim Carrey's character manages to get away with a lot of crazy shit down to the fact that he's like a rich privileged white guy clearly i mean yeah. yeah the whole thing with the cop where he's driving like a maniac and then has all these unpaid parking tickets uh like he gets off fairly lightly there um we were talking about how he sneaks onto the tarmac at an airport and this is clearly pre-9-11 <laughs> oh yeah um but it, again, like, you know, if he were not a rich white guy in a suit, he would probably be just shot on the tarmac. Oh, yeah. He would have not survived this day as a black man. No, not at all. Not at all. And there's something a little jarring about a man screaming, I'm Jose Canseco. Or a rich yeah. white man screaming, I'm Jose Canseco. But all that said, like, I think this movie saves itself by the fact that he has that realization of, oh man, everything that I have done my whole career is kind of BS and and this is all ridiculous. Like, I do have this ridiculous privilege and it's all yeah. built on, like, a house of cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, on It's all built on dishonesty and and bad morality. And I think the movie has, because it has that heart at the center of it that kind of eradicates for me any potential problematic stuff. Yeah, I was also just thinking, I think what helps the movie too is that his fixation on trying to trace them down, it's all about wanting to be with his son. He's not trying to be possessive or jealous of his wife really. That that's or his ex wife, I should say. Like he's Mm -hmm. that's not what it's about. It's all about his relationship with his son. So there's no kind of weird possessive angle that would be weird now. Yeah, it's kinda interesting that I don't know, you think of, like, a tragic hero has, like, a fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. And here, he's a comedic hero. He has the exact opposite. He has, like, this one good part of his personality is that he loves his son. Uh-huh. And he even has that realization over the course of the film. Like, hey, how about that? I really want to see my kid. Hey, I love my son. That's That's a really awesome thing that I can be honest about. And I feel like that's his one... I mean, that really is his one saving grace because everything else about his character up until this day is pretty terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it also makes you wonder about, I mean, again, like one of the strengths of this movie is that it doesn't get too into the weeds of like this power or this limitation that's on him, but it's like some sort of power is being object, like sort of or subjective about this in saying yes that is the truth that you are a prick you know like i've thought about that a lot in this film that who's what who or what power is deciding what's true here because there's things that are objectively true like the pen is blue right that whole sequence that makes sense but then there's other things like i love my son you know well that's you know, it's hard to say if that's right. true or or things like that. I or think early it's on, his own he... personal truth, though. That could be mm. because that's where he. Because I think a lot of the time he's lying to himself, 
And so then when he says, I'm an awful father, he has this mm-hmm. realization, if I can say this and this must be true, I can't deny it anymore. So I think it's kind of internally what he believes to be true or knows to be true. Almost like it's there in his, it's been yeah. there in his subconscious mm. and he's been burying it. Yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah. One of the things I like about this movie is that he almost goes through the, like he almost goes through the s- stages of grief with this curse that he has. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, yeah. like he definitely goes through denial. His first experience, I think I mentioned this while we were watching it. I love the choice of, I mean, I guess it's in the script, uh, but Jim Carrey plays it perfectly. Of the first time he has to tell the truth when he otherwise would have lied is when he says to the woman he's just slept with, when she asks him if that was good for you, he says, I've had better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, to show you how young I was when I first saw this movie, I didn't understand that line at all. Still found it kind of funny, but yeah. didn't understand yeah. what was going on there at all because I was just too young to really understand what they were talking about. But he goes through this great evolution. You just see him repeating that line over and over to himself where he says it, he's horrified, and then he's kind of disbelieving that he said that and then by the time he's brushing his teeth and getting ready for work he's just laughing about it like I can't believe that I said that that yeah that moment of madness and that's such a very such a clever way of introducing this curse but yeah I like that he has he's in denial about it like this can't be happening he gets angry he goes through bargaining with his son yeah of like please just just make this go away and ultimately accepting that, like, hey, honesty, this honesty thing's pretty cool. One of the other things I was wondering while we were watching this, though, is that you can tell the truth, but you don't have to say more than is needed. But that's what he kept doing in so many different circumstances. Like, saying, I've had better, he could have just said, oh, it was fine. Or, like, when mm-hmm. he's walking through the office and he says all the insults to the people around him, telling, you know, the guy that he's right. got high cholesterol and that kind of stuff. Like, he, he, he didn't have to say those things to tell the truth. Well, I think so there's some also... other kind of, like, impulse to say, like, a little bit more. I think this must be solved by your... I mean, I really like what you said about yeah. how it comes down to, like, what's in his heart and what's yeah. in his subconscious. So I think of it as he's got to say what's kind of what's in his heart, essentially, yeah. and what he really would want to say in those situations, or not what he would want to say, but really what's mm. the thoughts that are going on below the surface. As it's, if all the filter is just gone. As if all the filter is gone, yeah. It's kind of how I interpret that. Mm-hmm. What he wants to say, but can't, but now can, sort of. <laughs> now must. Yeah, right. now must. Because it's a really, the, the film has to play really, like walk a real tightrope with those rules. Like there's the scene where he beats himself up to try and get out of the court case mm-hmm. that he's in. He <laughs> beats himself up in the bathroom, <laughs> which is so gr- so insane. Yeah. And oh, I'm kicking my own ass. <laughs> so much of this film like relies on Jim Carrey. Like no, I can't imagine any other actor being able to pull. I mean, this version of this movie. I mean, where, like True. where it's a big physical performance. You're right. Because one thing that I was struck by is I really felt like this movie could have been made in the 40s as like a screwball comedy with Jimmy Stewart or something. Like it, it is, it does feel like very much like it's a wonderful life or something like that. But I could just see like, it's such a great idea for a movie. It's amazing that it hasn't, it was not done until 1997. I'd love to see the Frank Capra version. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. So uplifting. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I'm thinking is like the Frank Capra liar liar. I could almost see Cary Grant doing a version of this character. Because he was a very physical actor, but not, well, no, he he had a lot of acting with his face, but no one does it like Jim Carrey. Cary Grant, I could see a picture, a a version of this movie with Cary Grant, kind of. And I think it would just be more, I mean, it wouldn't be as raunchy, obviously, and Mm -hmm. it would rely less on Jim Carrey's insane physicality and his rubber face sort of stuff and his sort of improving. And I think it would just be more like... Yeah, saying saying something sort of inappropriate, and then you know, yeah, like yeah, sort of. totally. Just to finish off the thing I was going to say, I think this film has to walk 
walks a weirdly fine line where, like, when he comes into the court after kicking his own ass, <laughs> he gets asked by the judge, who did this to you? And he does a weird thing where he describes himself, which is very funny. Yeah. A, a madman, Your Honor. A desperate man at the end of his pitiful rope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then gives... And then what did he look like? And gives his exact measurements and everything and his exact description of himself. But it's weird that you think that he would just have to say, oh, I did this myself. Yeah. I it's mean, it's weird that he gets away with it there. He keeps finding new wrinkles in the rules as the days as the day progresses. Like he yeah. he realizes that he can't even an- ask a question of someone if he knows that the answer <laughs> will be a lie, which is really like nitpicky. I know. Yeah. I actually remember seeing this film even for the first time and even now I get a little moment of like, "Oh man, come on, that's so unfair." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like I feel, I feel genuine empathy for him at that moment. I mean, that I guess he can't they, even do that. I guess they have to do that because, with the exception of his like opening and closing statements, he could probably skate by just asking questions. <laughs> but I just wonder uh, how all these mechanics were decided. If if that was in this five year old's like uh, mind's eye when he made the wish, or I mean, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, yeah, some kind of spiritual being, I guess, yeah, has to yeah. decide that. Anyway, we should talk more, since you guys mentioned it, we should talk more about Jim Carrey's performance in this movie, I feel like. Yes, probably one of his best I think performances. It's my favorite. Oh, wow. I, uh, that's hard to say. I, I'm kind of with there with, there with Lindsay. I, uh, this and... If I had to pick two performances, this and Truman Show. Truman Show is actually his movie mm. right after this. Yeah. I would pick this as his, like, best straight-up comedic performance, and I would pick Truman Show as his best, more dramatic performance. Yeah. Because when I think of his other roles, The Mask is really good, but there's a little bit... It's a little bit... It's so extreme. It's so insane. It's yeah. so extreme. And then they have... I think it's a physical feat that's really incredible. Yeah. Like, but a lot of it is the CGI and the makeup. And that's the thing where they cover up his face, and in this one, it's just him. It's purely yeah. him. There are no effects to it. And that's the thing that's so astounding, is that he is just... he His face is rubber. He can do anything with it. Yeah. This film... The comedy relies so much on not just him, or not being able to tell a lie, but that when he is trying to tell a lie and can't, it's like almost this physical <laughs> yeah. thing that happens where his face contorts and he ends up doing all this insane stuff as well. Yeah. Like, that's, for me, that's the thing that he does so brilliantly in this movie is that you can feel there's almost a physical, not even almost, there's a very physical internal conflict happening inside him where he's trying to lie and this thing is stopping him. And when that conflict happens, just insane stuff (laughs) comes out the other end. Because I could see a lot of this falling flat because it's such an internal thing, not Mm -hmm. being able to lie the way that he externalizes it. Yeah, and I think so much of the humor is beca- is because he's able to make it so physical that you just can see him struggling. Where if it was played a little bit more subtly, I don't know if it would have worked as well. Right. Like, one of my favorite bits of the whole film is the moment where the other lawyer, right before the trial's about to begin, the other lawyer asks him what his argument is. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I'll tell you what my argument is. <laughs> and he just lets loose this string of just insane sounds and weird facial expressions <laughs> and just goes insane and no other actor could do that and it's <laughs> oh he's beating the, himself up yeah just... <laughs> the other there's so much joy in the, seeing the other actors have to just watch this in, insane performance just take place in front of their eyes and they have to <laughs> keep straight faces and be horrified by it. And I think what also helps make it work is everyone else is playing it straight. There it really isn't awful. another character played for comedic purposes in the entire movie yeah. I feel. I mean the closest anyone comes is maybe Carrie Elwes who you can tell is kind of putting on a performance a little bit like yeah. he's playing a character 
But he's one of my favorite performances in this. Interesting. In this movie, just because it's a little over the top, but then his character's a little over the top. And if his character weren't a little over the top, you would... He has to thread such a needle. You can't empathize with the stepdad too much, or the ending makes you go like, oh, well, that sucks for that guy. But you... You need to empathize with him a little bit for the story to work. Yeah. You had said you were kind of disbelieving of his character at the very end, though, right? I wasn't... Yeah. And I actually, on this watch, I believed it a little more. It's interesting, because as a kid, again, we talked about how this is Jim Carrey. He was at the height of his powers. He'd maybe made a bum note with with Cable Guy right before this, which was kind of critically Not drugged. well received at the time, but I know that its standing has improved since. Its, it's standing has improved since. I'd be really curious to watch it again, but he he still was very much at the... He was a superstar still at this point. And just naturally, that means that as a kid, I mean, just like you must have, you instantly empathize with Jim Carrey yeah. just because it's Jim Carrey and you're on his side. And you see this other guy kind of encroaching on his territory and trying to be, or and being a good dad, basically, but mm-hmm. kind of being a good dad in Jim Carrey's stead. And you're like, screw that guy. That guy is a magoo. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, that guy is kind of a nerd and a dork. Uh, and as I've grown older, the thing that's happened with this movie is I've grown, gained more and more empathy for Carrie Ellis' character. I had almost none when I was a little kid because I just wanted to see Jim Carrey win the day in the end. And now watching this movie, I still feel sorry for him at the end. Like, he proposed Mm -hmm. and is a really good dad to Max. Like, yeah, he's kind of dorky, but... He's doing his best, yeah. you know. He's present. Kinda, he's present. It reminds me of Bill Pullman in Sleepless in Seattle, where he's a really oh, nice yeah. guy, and his only flaw is that he's kind of nerdy, and he has a few allergies. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Well, the situation here is Carrie Elwes is like a hopeless romantic, and he's just rushing things. And Maura Tierney's not really into it. I mean, right. they've only been dating for seven months. Right, yeah. What saves it for me is the fact that on the plane... He clearly has the realization, like, when he says, I love you, and she says, thank you. And even when pushed, she changes it to thank you very much. Mm -hmm. He clearly has the realization there of, I've rushed this. This woman is not as into me as I am into her. Which I think makes the ending work. That when she Mm kind of tells him, I can't go to Boston with you. Before I kind of thought, well, it's weird that he doesn't put up any kind of a fight there. But actually watching it this time, that made sense because he's had this realization like, yeah, it was too fast. I made a mistake. This one's not enough into me. We've only been dating seven months. That's his dad. He loves his dad. I get it. Oh, Carrie Elwes. <laughs> I love his character. It also in this. helps that I I forgot just how much of a prick they make Jim Carrey in the first oh like everything prior to when the the switch happens. It's very difficult to empathize with anything that he does. Mm-hmm. He's not just like a neglectful father, but just like he's a jerk like to everyone. Yeah. It seems like yeah. everything that he's saying and doing is just so well, gross. I mean, he is a jerk, but also they make it very clear that the people that he works with love him. Yeah. yeah. Like they seek his approval mm-hmm. and his, his secretary secret. likes him despite the fact he doesn't treat her very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's everyone has affection for him despite how he is. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, goes back to his... Like, he definitely gets away with behaving in ways that if he weren't a man and if he weren't a rich white guy, he wouldn't get away with. That people go, oh, he's such a cad. Well, I wonder if Jim Carrey is experiencing that, too. Although his... He's a painter now. Yeah, that's true. His his shtick was never... George W. Bush. Was never, like, portraying a character that you relate to. No. He was always just about being crazy, which I think helped him. Well, with Truman Show, he made a real shift away. Well, he did me, myself, and Irene the less said years about after that, this. The the less said, yeah. And the less said about that, the better. I feel like he started to make a move away. Actually, probably with the Truman Show, so right after Liar Liar, 
away from these like rubber faced I'm gonna mm-hmm. go completely crazy movies yeah. into slightly more serious and Eternal roles. Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which that's almost I my opinion on that is like I mean he I think he's very good in it, but it's almost like too restrained to the point where I think so too, why yeah. did you have Jim Carrey play this character? Because you're kind of taking away all of his tools. Mm-hmm. That's why I think this and Truman Show are his best movies. So in this, he has to be... He is over the top. Uh, as even the bloopers acknowledge. <laughs> there's even the, the bloopers joke that come bloopers. right after <laughs> yeah. the movie. Where, where there's the joke where one of the actors calls him an over-actor. And he laughs about it. Because there's definitely points in this movie where he's right on the edge of taking it, like, just way too far, where you're like, I don't believe any of this, that this would be allowed in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. I think at one point while we were watching, Sean, you even said, like, I feel like any judge would just say this is a mistrial at this point. Yeah, like, yeah. early on and all of this. <laughs> also, even after he seemingly was beat up by someone in the bathroom, there's, they, they were asking, oh, the judge asked, oh, are you okay to keep going? Or do you want to... <laughs> Delay this one. <laughs> yeah, and but even so, I feel like his performance is just like just not too crazy that you can just about believe it, or mm-hmm. at least suspend your disbelief to be like, okay, I'll accept this world. Yeah, and yet he does have to show some like dramatic chops. I feel like oh yeah, the stakes are high with his son leaving and he he does that very well too mm-hmm. and I feel like he then goes from this to Truman Show where he has to play this guy realizing that the whole world that he lives in is a lie um, which is an interesting move from this movie um, and he does that so well and gets to be kind of over the top in that movie a little bit too and I feel like no other actor could pull that off I'd have to say Truman Show is my favorite Jim Carrey performance, just because I feel like I can, like you say, Ben, I can see a lot of the elements of that performance kind of being crafted here. I do Mm. feel like he's a little too hard on the rubber face, kind of almost in every scene. You're right. To the, like, even in the early stuff with his kid when he's still just normal and doing the the claw, (laughs) you know? I almost wish that he'd pulled it back a little bit for that so that when he is cursed, you know, with the this yeah. cannot lie thing, mm-hmm. it, it, that's when it comes through. I will see though, say, though, that you get the contrast at the end of the film at his son's sixth birthday. Where he is a little more or restrained, you Maybe feel it's like? his seventh birthday, yeah. I guess. Whenever, <laughs> however <laughs> fuck the Somehow his Benjamin birthday birthday yeah. kid is. Wait, yeah. wait, actually, <laughs> at his birthday, he had... The original birthday where he had the really creepy clown. There were five. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. There were five candles on the cake. So he was four turning five. Yeah, that's right. So he's four when the movie starts. Yeah. Which is madness. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And then I just, I, I forgot to mention this earlier. We have this birthday party for his first fifth birthday there are kids everywhere she hired a clown it's like the biggest birthday ever it's and the most the, popular five-year-old you've ever met and then at the end of the movie it's this dark house it's just him and his two parents there's no one there to celebrate his birthday with him what happened well you know when i was growing up i'd have sometimes i'd have the family party yeah like because it might if it fell on like a day of the week mm. That's now we'd have we'd get to have our cake with you know, my mom and dad and sister, and then you'd also have the kids' party either the weekend before or after. So maybe we were just seeing the family party. That's I don't know. That's or the other theory. children realized his his horrifying powers that he yeah. had and distanced themselves. Yeah. I wish Johnny's that. face would melt off. Why <laughs> <laughs> the kids didn't want to come back because he had a clown the first time. Yeah, that clown <laughs> who seems to be in away. blackface. <laughs> <laughs> or no, he's dangerously close though. Yeah. I just like that when there's the sad scene where he's realizing his dad's not going to come and there's that moment and they zoom in on different people in the crowd and it zooms in on the clown going, oh. That's the best. There's this one <laughs> shot of the clown there watching him blow out his candles, which is a little strange. Yeah. At the tail end of, I think, clowns being featured in birthday parties in movies. 
Man, I don't know. I feel like that's just a trope that happens. I think it's definitely a thing. I like how in Uncle Buck, though, the clown is awful. Oh, yeah. He's he has to punch him out. He yeah. has to get kicked out. It must be especially a feature in L.A., too, because there's so many out-of-work actors oh, probably yeah. working oh. as clowns. It's probably a thing to have a clown at your birthday party in L.A. Because I think the thing now is that you hire princesses. There are professional yeah, princesses sure. that you can hire to show up at the birthday. And I bet boys have, like, Marvel heroes. Something like yeah. that, yeah. Oh, man. So there's new versions of these things now that what a world. have to put the clown makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> I think Maura Tooney, I like her performance in this movie. My favorite scene of her is where she... It's almost a heartbreaking scene where she's trying to explain to Carrie Elwes why she can't pull Max away from Fletcher. And the yeah. one thing she has is, well, he does the claw and she does this impersonation of the claw. That's, <laughs> that's, there's something heartwarming and heartbreaking about it at the same time. She's yeah. like, oh, I can't really do it. And you can see that Carrie Elwes is like, really? We're, you're staying behind. Yeah. For that, for the claw, I don't get it. Yeah. And it's sowing the seed of uh, Carrie Elwes doing the wildly misguided impersonation of the claw, trying to literally <laughs> replace his dad. I feel like that's at the worst possible. Yeah, the worst possible time when you're like on the tarmac, leaving forever. Um, I feel like that is the moment where the movie's like, look, it's probably okay if they don't end up with Gary Elwes because yeah. <laughs> he'd do something like this. He's a little, it's not that he's a bad guy, but he's like, doesn't quite understand those boundaries. Mm -hmm. Well, then he just doesn't really get it, right? I mean, that's the whole issue is that he can't really be this kid's dad because he just isn't and he's never going to get it and have that connection. Right. No matter how, no matter how hard he tries. Mm -hmm. No matter how present he is, no matter how much he says, like, yeah, let's throw the ball around, yeah. it's just not, it's not his dad. Like, it's, it's not... shadow. Yeah, it's not natural for Max. Max doesn't have that natural affection for him. Again, as you pointed out, Lindsay, we've only been dating for seven months. Like, of yeah. course. <laughs> I do, I did remember how you said there was a scene where it kind of went over your head about what the meaning of it was, and I was thinking, when... Jim Carrey is talking to his ex-wife by her car and he's essentially saying, so you guys banging yet? I did not get that when I was <laughs> yeah. a kid. No, definitely not. And it's kind of hinted at that he was cheating on her. As yeah, a... It's almost more or less set stated. Yeah. That he, that's what, kind of why they separated is that he was cheating on her. And that was not something that I ever understood either until right. this watch. Because I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Yeah, just to emphasize again, like you said, Sean, how flawed this character is mm. presented at the beginning. Like, not a good person, screwed up his marriage, is in the process of screwing up the relationship with his, with his son. Actually, some of my favorite scenes are Jim Carrey and Maura Tierney and Carrie Elwes all kind of interacting with each other because it mm. feels very real and believable. And actually, I feel like that's one time when Jim Carrey kind of pulls it back. Yeah. A little bit. It's one of my favorite lines in the movie where Gary Elwes says says to Jim Carrey, Great gift, Dad! And Jim Carrey says, Thanks, son. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the right the right tone of like a little bit of bitterness and but still kind of family friendly and hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you said that you had some reservations with the kind of finale and I out on the tarmac and just that whole bit. I feel like I, I've dealt with those. I felt like it was a little too neat at the end. Particularly Carrie Elwes, I thought that his character would put up a little more of a fight there. But like I said earlier, the fact that he... The fact that he had this realization that... This woman's just not that into me, and I can't replace this guy as Max's dad. I feel like he's had that realization, so it. I buy that he just accepts it. Mm -hmm. And his last line is something like, looks like he has his dad back. And I, bu I buy that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I like the ending. I like the suggestion that they might get back together, even though... 
Like, I generally don't like that trope. As a child of divorce myself, anytime yeah. a movie suggests that that's a possibility that yeah. that can happen, I'm like, that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, based on my experience, but um, I think it works here. They do it just deftly enough. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about ending with a big action set piece at what otherwise has been a pretty grounded movie? Has it been grounded? I mean... Because this happens after he beats the shit out of himself in the back. Okay, I'll say, like, relatively grounded, because what my hang-up with the ending is less the character stuff and more just, I'm willing to make that jump and believe that this kid's wish came true, mm-hmm. but I'm it's harder for me to make the jump that he's going to now sneak into this conveyor belt and hijack... Uh, a vehicle and drive it out onto the tarmac and run alongside the plane. Yeah. Like, I feel like even when I was a kid, that sequence felt a little... I know that they felt the need to really, like, not have it be anticlimactic and really, like, have a huge climax like that. I just wonder if what could have... What else could have really been done? Mm. I guess it's hard because he does so much physical comedy and it gets pretty extreme throughout the film. They just have to continually up the ante until it gets there. It's one of the things that never quite works with this movie for me that they have to have, because it's one day, they have to have these sudden stakes of, we're going to Boston tonight. Mm -hmm. Which, like, that's not how it would work in real life. It would be like, okay, next, you know, in a couple weeks we're moving to Boston. It wouldn't be like, how did they when did they buy their tickets like that day would be so expensive especially when you have a five-year-old who's gonna be confused like that's not really the right way to handle this when you're yeah, trying to think of your kid doesn't he have school tomorrow like what's ha- yeah. what's happening so i uh, that always feels very strange to me it's like the show 24 is another thing <laughs> for dramatic purposes you need to make this all in 24 hours but it's like when i look back on that show and i think like they were invoking the 25th amendment to take the president out of office and meanwhile in the real world it's been years and like obviously that should happen yeah my thing with 24 was always i would constantly have the thought of this is the biggest news day in the history of the world like a nuclear bomb's gone (laughs) off a politician's been kidnapped like so much shit has happened I it would seems also like we've love... had several of these news days, <laughs> and this one guy is always in the middle of it. Uh, man, I would love Liar Liar with a 24-style countdown <laughs> clock to when he can tell the truth again would be hilarious. There are a lot of uh, connections there, I think. I buy it just because I love the movie, so I just accept it, and I'm willing to suspend my disbelief, but... It always, even as a kid, it felt weird that they were suddenly moving to Boston, and I never quite got the time scale of that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's this is happening right now that they're going to Boston. Or is it that they're just looking at houses? Right, I guess they're just looking at houses, yeah. but it feel it's made to feel like they're moving to Boston yeah. now. Like, if he doesn't stop that plane... Right. I guess that's the other thing. Why is he reacting so strongly when they're telling him, no, they're just looking at houses? Because right. she's going to have to come back because they're not moving in that moment. Well, they couldn't have packed up all their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's strange. And then it actually took me multiple watches of this film as a kid to realize that after his conversation with the, like, security... Not security guard, baggage handler, some mm-hmm. someone mm-hmm. at the airport... Who you weirdly see- knows a lot about the flights for that day. Yeah, yeah. 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 he immediately he says, oh, that know. flight's leaving right away. Yeah. Uh, you see him in the background sneaking in via the luggage. Yeah. The first, I want to say the first two or three times I saw this movie, I missed that completely. And I never even noticed. Oh, interesting. I was like, I guess he just like ran away. <laughs> what happened there? He blended and then in I so s- perfectly with, with the that. luggage. And then I suddenly noticed like, oh, that's how he got in. But that doesn't make any sense. You can't sneak into the baggage like they screen that it was a more innocent time then. it was a more innocent yeah. time <laughs> you know and maybe somebody just backed a full size man in 1997 they were just like yeah yeah just get him on the plane I was also thinking things that you don't notice happening in the ba- background when he's in jail and he gets when he's getting mailed out he has what is it he's sitting on there's a bunk <laughs> where's someone sleeping yeah and he's sitting on the ba- the bottom bunk where someone is sleeping. It's not even an open seat or anything. 
I didn't notice that until this watch. I've seen this movie so many times. That's a real blink and you miss it. I'm positive that was a decision Jim Carrey did. Like, I'm sure the director is like, yeah, you'll be sitting up on the top bunk. And this (laughs) guy's just passed out. He's like, no, I want to be sitting next to this passed out guy. It's why even have that guy in there? You gotta pay an extra to be in there. He could have just been in the cell by himself. It's such a weird choice. Or have that guy sleep on the top bunk. (laughs) Like (laughs) everything about it is strange. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't notice it until this time, so. I was a fan of that choice. (laughs) (laughs) It gave us a little chuckle amidst all the others. I've always thought it was a little strange that this movie ends and then there are bloopers immediately before even the credits happen, which I feel like is very rare. Yeah, because I guess normally the credits roll at least a little bit and then it transitions to bloopers or deleted scenes or extra scenes or whatever. I feel like what I've seen a lot is like credits scrolling on one side of the screen and then on the other side of the screen there's like a little insert screen Mm -hmm. when you see bloopers happening. But in this film it's the movie ends... It, like, cuts to black or fades to black. I don't entirely remember. And then hard cut straight into bloopers and music happening over the bloopers before... And maybe we're having, like... Maybe the names of the yeah. actors are coming in Yeah, there. like, the yeah. beginning of the credits. And it cuts right to a scene that I guess we haven't talked about where he's in the elevator early on in the day and he basically <laughs> sexually harasses this woman. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, oh, they're bringing it full circle for a second before I realized that they are bloopers. I was like, oh, he's gonna, like, what's gonna happen here? But that then I saw interesting. <laughs> yeah, but then I saw she wasn't recoiling at sealing this guy again, and I was like, oh, these are bloopers. I'd completely <laughs> forgotten that they do this. Yeah, it's a very weird choice, but I, I enjoy the bloopers a lot. It really gives an insight into kind of how much of a comedic genius Jim Carrey is, because most of the bloopers are him fudging his lines, but then he just keeps going and does some insane thing is kind of how his way of dealing with fudging his lines. Mm -hmm. I also feel like it would be exhausting to be an actor in a scene with him because imagine how many takes they had to do every time he's doing something kind of different and it's like probably hard to sync up with someone like that. Well, you don't know what he's going to do so you're going to have so much more laughter on set. Yeah. And then you have to do... Surely the actors must have broken all the time. Yeah. And I also... There's one point where he's... In the bloopers where he's making the weird paper goose. <laughs> where I noticed the camera moved to pick up what yeah. he was doing. And I, I just That's thought... That's an unplanned I had this camera move for sure. Yeah, and I had this thought of... Man, they must have had to do that all the time. Like, how do you set marks for Jim Carrey? Yeah. <laughs> the focus puller was going nuts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I enjoy the bloopers a lot. I think it's I think it's a fun way of ending that that movie. And ultimately, it's this is just a really fun, very funny movie. I mean, the first time I saw this, it was like the hardest I've ever laughed watching a movie, more or less. Wow. I mean, I think that leads us right into kind of our thoughts on the movie, our final uh, assessments. We've got mm-hmm. a little system on this show. I'm sure you you're aware of. Uh, Buy it, rent it, tape over it. I think I know where Ben is going to land, but uh, I want to ask anyway. Definite, definite buy it. I think this is a good, this is a good film to own. It's, um, it's a classic comedy as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you talked about how it could be, a version of it could be a screwball comedy from the 40s. And I feel like it almost deserves a classic status in a kind of way, just because I don't think there's another movie quite like it. I'm going to go rent it myself. I do like this movie a lot. I think I like it even more on this watch. Uh, I've only seen it a couple of times. I remember seeing it in the theaters with my dad at like uh, a discount theater that would get second run movies. It was in a double feature with Austin Powers. Uh, <laughs> That's which a hell was, of a double Yeah, feature. it was, and it, I remember Austin Powers came first, and it was like a real, like, kind of, you know, <laughs> going from that style of comedy to straight spoof to something more nuanced, like this was a real uh, whiplash. But, um, I mean, I'm sure that. <laughs> Only this when is compared the, to Austin Powers could the comedy in this movie be called nuance. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do have some, some qualms with it. Uh, 
here and there, um, but I do really like it a lot. I think that Jim Carrey's performance is great. I think it's aged pretty well. Just giving it a little room for improvement with her. Mm-hmm. Lindsay? This one's tough. I'm going to go buy it. Just because Jim Carrey really is at his comedic best in this. And I just love seeing him with all of that energy completely embracing this role and running with it. <laughs> <laughs> the tagline on this movie could have been just been Jim Carrey unleashed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just hard to pass up. Like, it, it's got little things. Like, I wish they'd done a little bit more with Carrie Elwes' character. Yeah. Um, I think he does a really good job, but I always want more from him. Yeah. Um, There's almost no space for anyone else in this movie just because exactly. Jim Carrey's flailing his way all the way yeah. through it. Yeah. But I just love it. It was just so much fun to watch it again. It actually like held up to my memory of it. So that that's turned out to be rarer than I thought. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, thank you for being on the show. A pleasure. Um, thank you for having me. It's been a it's been a real delight. Thank you for bringing your VHS copy of Liar Liar. Yeah, really, Megs. My fiance's VHS. I did notice version. Wheeler was written yes. on the back of it. Yeah, so really, she gets the credit for owning this movie. Um, but next episode, we are switching to Lindsay's collection. Uh, do you know what VHS tape we're going to cover on the next episode of Tape Heads? We're finally going to watch The Big Green. Whoa. Yeah, which is a kid's soccer movie. In honor of the World Cup coming up. Nice. Oh, wow. Good choice. And I think it'll be interesting. I have just the vaguest memories of that movie. So Who's in little, that? The kid from the Sandlot in it, isn't it, right? Yeah, there are a few kids that I know their faces, but I have no idea what their right. names are. That kid. <laughs> yeah. The oh, big kid. Guy. The yeah. big 90s kid, you know? <laughs> All Ooh, right. Well, don't want to miss that. The big green next time. I want to thank Will Price for use of his song, Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also contact us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. And I'm Ben. Until next time.